0: Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or Blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now to the show. Hi there, and welcome to a special Wednesday mini episode of Decent People podcast. I spoke to Chad Cascaria, who is the co-founder and CEO of Paxos, which is a New York state regulated trust company that is working to digitize real world assets like gold and um, some stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I spoke to him for the IEFA conversation series. That's the International Economic Forum of the Americas. And they were nice enough to let me repurpose this for the podcast. So the episode is titled Is Crypto Going to Replace Gold? And I hope you enjoy it. Take care. Hi, and welcome to the latest IEFA conversation series. My name is Matt Lysing. I'm the co-founder of Decentral Media, a crypto media company uh, and uh, filmmaker. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Charles Cascarilla, the CEO of Paxos, uh, which is uh, a digital asset firm that is uh, basically just trying to digitize all the assets in the world. Um, Chad, it's been a while since I've seen you, but we've known each other for quite a while. How are Great. you?
1: Great, uh, good to be here. Uh, nice yeah. to see you.
0: I was looking back um, at some of our past stories we've done together when I was a reporter at Bloomberg News. And I I was laughing, one was in 2015, you were at ItBit, and the story was about um, how the payment systems weren't really up to speed with blockchain technology. And you guys were trying to offer your customers uh, ways to settle um, and clear gold transactions on uh, a blockchain that you were calling bank chain. Um, So uh, that was November 2015, uh, and that that makes us both dinosaurs in this age. can you just tell us a little bit about that? How you got into that in the first place, and then like how are things? How have things changed in those last yeah, seven
1: years? Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Fun to go down memory lane here a little bit. So um, I've spent my career in financial services, uh, mainly as an investor, uh, early stage companies all the way through public companies. And um, uh, what that gave me a vantage seat at was understanding how technology was fundamentally shifting the financial system, uh, fundamentally changing how. Um, Uh, the economy uh, works. And that is a big change that's happened over time. And when I came across um, uh, blockchain in early uh, uh, 2010, actually, and that um, technology really immediately uh, grabbed my imagination. It wasn't obvious what you could use it for, but it was clear to me that it could be really transformative at changing um, the very um, fundamentals of the plumbing of the financial system. It would allow us to be able to know, for instance, who owns what when, which, as it came out of the financial crisis, was not obvious. Um, It really uh, both exacerbated the crisis and hindered the recovery. Couldn't figure out where the assets were, not just from Lehman Brothers failing, but just in general. And blockchain technology looked to me as a fundamental way to change how the financial system was operating so that it could be always on, 24-7, instantaneous, anywhere in the world. Uh, A big shift from basically being closed. And so what we were doing all the way back even in 2015 was trying to think of how could we get assets into a blockchain environment to move around. And uh, we were of course trying gold and um, other assets. Uh, Today we're settling almost $200 million of uh, gold trades uh, through our uh, settlement system. And we have about $625 million of gold that we've tokenized um, and that's on Ethereum. And I think maybe the interesting thing from 2015 till today is how uh, the thinking has evolved around public blockchains versus private blockchains. Mm -hmm. and. you know, By no means uh, is that settled, but on the other hand, um, you kind of went through some really pronounced phases in the early days around, well, public blockchains are really just Bitcoin and private blockchains will be for everything else. And I think what we've come to see is that the utility and advantage of a public blockchain is that anybody can have access to it. You can still have the trustworthy components that make it usable um, even though uh, it might not just be for crypto. And you could put, for instance, dollars or gold or even securities on it. And uh, we have a long way to go to replatform the whole financial system. You know, $700 trillion of assets is a big number, and we're effectively still at zero. Um, but on the other hand, I think we've come a long way from 2015, where it was still really very nascent um, in terms of what um, a new system could look like. I think that's a lot more into focus now than it has ever been.
0: Yeah, that was a big debate back then um, about you know public versus private blockchain. Um, there was even the debate about Bitcoin or blockchain, not Bitcoin. Um, you've made real strides though in in, in one of the largest markets um, in the world, in the U.S. equities market, where you've uh, had a pilot program approved by the SEC for a few years now, where you've you've basically digitized um, a select number of stocks, and these are these are trading now. Um, among your customers who include um, investment banks and I believe a, a couple asset managers. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and how um, this peer-to-peer trading differs from what goes on in the traditional market when you've got an, an intermediary like the DTCC in the middle.
1: Yeah so I think um- The equity market is a perfect example of where old technology is kind of holding the markets back. Um, You know, certainly this was a really good innovation 50 years ago, but today there are new ways you can do things. And the way to solve um, settlement in the past had been, let's have one intermediary be in the middle. And uh, of course, that intermediary is a too big to fail institution. And when you're too big to fail, that means you have to hold a lot of excess capital. And, um, and the guarantee you get of that intermediary today is actually um, uh, something that's never been utilized before, uh, ever before. Uh, just to be very precise, Uh, not during the 87 crash and not during the SNL crisis, not during the dot com uh, uh, crash, not during the Asian financial crisis. You go on and on. Lehman Brothers failing has never been used. GameStop. All these times. And so you have a huge amount of capital. And to put that into dimension, it's about 35 to 75 billion dollars of capital uh, that's locked into this trade guarantee mechanism. On top of that, it only runs on batches. It runs opaquely. It's still very expensive. It's running on COBOL mainframes. So, um, you know, you can probably squeeze a little bit more efficiency out of it. But if you think about how do you fundamentally get uh, your equities trading and your financial system to operate 24 7, instantaneously, uh, allows people to be able to have a, um, open access that you can program, it's not possible on COBOL mainframes. Like you're just fundamentally outside the realm of what those um, enable. and um, uh, Whereas blockchain uh, really does solve that. And so if you can take um, equities and frankly any asset, put them into this blockchain environment to move around, either public or private, you create a whole different mechanism. And you can enable um, uh, real-time, and maybe it doesn't need to be real-time, it could just be end-of-day settlement. Mm -hmm. and that will drastically lower the risks. Because if you look at GameStop, here's the interesting thing about the GameStop crisis. It was actually only caused because of the settlement problems. If you settled at the end of uh, T0, you would not have had a GameStop issue. If you didn't have to front all of the cash for your customers in the settlement process, even though you have their cash in your account, um, you would have not had this GameStop issue. So the the tail has now become to wag the dog in financial markets, which is that the infrastructure is really hindering our economy.
0: Yeah, you've you've touched on a really important point there. It's when in the traditional system, stocks are going through the clearing process. um, The the buyer and the seller, they have to put capital aside until that transaction is completed. And that can take two to three days in, in many cases. So that's a lot of money that fi- financial firms aren't able to access um, and, and use in other ways. With this peer-to-peer um, system that you guys are creating, the um, it's it's pretty much, you're going towards instantaneous settlement. I know you're probably not quite there yet, but even if it's minutes or an hour or two, it's much, much better from an efficiency point of view than um, days when that's all, um, you know, all that capital is being locked up. Um, where do you see uh, so you've, you've you've done this with gold you've, you've done it with equities um we i talked to you back in 2015 again and one of the points we were making then was that the payment side like the money side was not quite there yet um is that different now with stable coins and can you like tell us a little bit about because it's easy to digitize assets right that can move around on a blockchain it was back then it was really hard to like digitize the US dollar or have some sort of representation for the actual cash leg of, of these transactions. So, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, uh, this is an interesting point. So, you know, you can have assets move, uh, but you need to have the payments move too. Uh, normally assets don't move for assets, asset moves for a payment. And so, when you're even doing stock trades, um, you're moving IBM shares, you're gonna get you want dollars, uh, you're not. Asking for Goldman shares or something, and um, and uh, you know, there's an advantage to moving from say T two settlement to T end of day settlement. Um, you don't have the risk um, of waiting for two days for your money, and um, you know, but you still want your money to be able to move fast. Uh, you even maybe even faster than just T uh, end of day at some point. And so this has brought up, I think, a very important topic around stablecoins. And so uh, stable coins can mean a lot of things. Um, uh, To me, a stable coin, if it's really a stable coin, it has to be backed by cash and equivalents Mm -hmm. that have no credit risk, have no interest rate risk, um, have no liquidity risk. Basically, you can turn your dollar uh, that is a stable coin dollar directly into a dollar in the banking system. And you have to be able to do that basically immediately. If you can do that, to me, that's a stable coin. If instead you've decided to back your stablecoin by say loans or Bitcoin or something else, it might be something, but it's not a dollar stablecoin anymore. It might even be an ETF or who knows what it is. Um, And so we have issued a stablecoin through our trust company that's in the state of New York. We have a lot of oversight on it. We have a primary regulator and we follow a strict rule, which is that we only use basically T-bills to back these dollars. Uh, cash and equivalents under GAP, And so this is a really fundamental, important um, way of understanding um, uh, why the dollar that we're creating, the stablecoin is safe. Now, why is it relevant? Why do you need a stablecoin dollar? And I, what I really want to tell people is that money is a product. And sometimes we forget that because it just has so many other uh, mean, uh, meanings to us. But mm-hmm. really that's all it is, is a product. And today, that product only works in two ways, physically, bills in your pocket, or electronically in the closed banking system. But that banking system is running nine to five. It's not programmable. It's not instantaneous. It's um, not running um, in uh, real time. And that is a real hindrance to the economy. Mm-hmm. When I think about um, where the economy is going, and a lot of people talk about Web3 and Metaverse. And I feel like that's a little abstract. It's really just, there's a new economy going on. People are moving at the at the speed of the internet and the economy is moving at the speed of the internet. The financial system is not. And we're coming up with ways to try and hack around that, but it's fundamentally not. But if you put a dollar on a stable coin, sorry, a dollar on a blockchain, it can now move at the speed of the internet in the same way as all other information. It still needs to be trustworthy. It still needs to be you know give you certainty that it, it's um, uh, not going to have risks to it but you need it to be able to move at that kind of speed and pace. And um, I actually think fundamentally the most interesting thing that's coming out of the uh, crypto ecosystem and the blockchain ecosystem is that people want dollars. It's not that people don't want dollars, but what they need is dollars that can actually serve the use cases and the way their lives are living now, uh, not how they used to be. And that is where I think there's this fundamental uh, maybe, uh, misunderstanding is that the way the system is set up today is COBOL mainframes, Web zero, Web one. There, Web two came along, which had a good user interface. Web three really means how do you get it all to work at the speed of the internet?
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you see, um, just quickly, do you envision the the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve issuing digital dollars at some point in the future?
1: I think it might. Um, you know, I think that's a long way off. The reason I think it's a long way off is because this concept of money as a product makes you really have to realize that, have we established what um, a uh, blockchain-based dollar will fundamentally look like in the future? And my firm viewpoint is we don't know. And yeah. the reason is on an economy-wide basis, you could not run a stablecoin system the way it's being run now. There's actually no privacy. You can always see the money moving.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was that just going to say. That is a huge amount of information. Issue. Yeah, that's a real yeah, issue on
1: so information that's leaking out. So how do you basically determine exactly how you want to construct that to get the right product market fit? Yeah. And I actually think the private sector is really valuable here because we can do a lot of experimenting. We can move fast. The government historically is not very good at technology at iterating quickly, trying new products and determining which one works. That's what the private sector is for. So I think eventually the government will do it. But I I just think that we're so far away from really knowing what it would mean that it's hard um, to then get the whole apparatus of government to coalesce around what is a good idea.
0: Yeah. You're um, coming up against some really powerful incumbents, uh, the members of the DTCC, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corp. Those are all the biggest banks in the world. Um, you're, you're coming up against the, the gold market, which you know goes back for centuries and, and also has some of the biggest banks in the world involved and, and huge investors. Are you getting pushback from them or how, how, do, how would you um, characterize how what you're trying to do is being viewed and either accepted or rejected by people in the traditional financial world.
1: Well, I think you know there's just a range. Um, so on the uh, and on one hand, you probably have like the crypto world, which is like, you know just talking about pure disruption. And then you have uh, the some incumbents where they're talking about, hey, you know everything is fine the way it is. I actually think most people are kind of in the middle, and most people meaning most uh, banks and businesses, et cetera. What they want to do is figure out how can we give our customers products that they want, mm-hmm. either new ones or upgrade the existing ones. And so when you start framing it, what does your customer want? Most of these institutions have the end customer, the banks, the brokers, they have the end customer. That's what they care about. And they want their infrastructure provider to enable them to be able to deliver the best products to their customer they can. And I think that most people realize the way infrastructure is set up today is it does not allow you to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you immediately have to think, okay, it's not allowing us to do it. Can it, or do we need to work with somebody else? And I think um, there's, uh, it depends on the exact type of asset and the product, but there is a real strong reception to what we're doing because um, we're well-funded. Uh, we come from uh, the finance industry. We understand these problems. Um, we have uh, you know, hundreds of employees. We're hiring hundreds more. Uh, we're led by product and engineering. That all en- enables us to work with these firms, to give them the infrastructure that they need in order to keep up with where their customers' lives are moving. And that's the important lens to look at this. And so, sure, um, not every firm wants to necessarily go along with it. But at the end of the day, everyone wants to make their customer happy. And so what exactly does that mean? And I think that's in- increasingly being understood as modernized products.
0: Yeah. And, and one thing I, I love about Web3 is, um is that it's not stopping for anybody. It's just gonna keep doing what it's doing and it's creating an alternative. It's not necessarily going to, you know, replace Wall Street or the traditional financial world, but every day these folks are building um, these new systems. So there, there is an alternative out there for lending, for collateralizing, you know, for capital formation, all these things that are very um, core to the traditional financial world or are being remade in this web three um, fashion. So. If you guys want to digitize all the things, what's next for you? Are you, is it bonds? Is it treasury? Like some sort of government debt or what, what do you think um, is the next good fit for for this kind of application?
1: Um, This is, it's a really interesting uh, question because um, you're right. This web three world, this kind of um, online, hundred percent digital world is clearly um, growing so quickly and uh, and, it's growing in part because it now has a financial system that can keep up with it. And so, um, you have digitally, uh, native assets like NFTs, you have blockchain native assets, like say Bitcoin, then you have assets that are being, all the rest of the assets are being put into a blockchain environment, dollars, gold, equities, real estate, I think physical artwork. Um, you know, I don't think there'll be any end to what ends up being moved over bonds, uh, commodities and so what we oftentimes think about is what is the adoption curve that will enable that to happen We know it will happen but it doesn't it's not necessarily going to happen uh, all at once. so there's an adoption rate and so we often think certain commodities gold makes a lot of sense dollars make a lot of sense you need dollars to be in there. you need large liquid asset classes equities, private securities to me are really um, obvious examples of this. Um, And bonds, those are a little bit harder because the advantage of equities is that they're all the same. Yeah. Uh, So they're all fungible. Whereas like bonds, each one is a little bit different. Um, Even when they're say all US government bonds, each one is a different maturity date. It starts to make it a little bit more difficult. So you just have to recognize like what's the process to get over enough um, large asset classes. And then I think, it all happens very fast because you'll hit critical mass. We're still not at critical mass if you said uh, non-digitally native assets. So non-NFTs, non-crypto assets, how much are actually um, tokenized? It's about $150 billion. That's it. Um, And that's all U.S. dollars. The next largest thing is our gold token. Still very small amount of transformation that's happened in the scheme of things. But I think it'll start to happen very, very quickly as you get in uh, one or two large asset classes that have shifted over.
0: And, and one thing um, that's interesting is you've talked about adoption and bringing people in um, and, and how it's still very early in terms of the amount of assets that have been digitized. Um, how are you going about at Paxos, like trying to, to spread the word here and get, get new people into this market? Uh, what, what efforts do you guys have underway for that?
1: Um, I think one of the... Um... Uh, clear ways that we've been bringing people into the space is through uh, crypto brokerage, which is a product that allows firms to build access to crypto products right off our platform. And some of those are PayPal and Venmo, um, uh, interactive brokers, uh, Revolut, uh, Mercado Pago, and, and many others. And what's interesting about that is it's starting to gain to a critical mass. There's about 650 million end users through our partnerships that can now access crypto-based products. And I think that could be well north of a billion by the end of this year. Um, And so that's a lot of access that people have. It's not the same thing as the penetration, but a lot of access. And I think it'll be multiple billions next year. And so part of this idea of how do you re-platform the financial system partly comes through just creating access to blockchain-based assets, even if they're just crypto-native assets um, for people's everyday lives. And that's a fundamental, um, uh, shift in, uh, what people have exposure to. And when you have that, you start to become used to seeing these assets, thinking about them and wanting everything else to move at that kind of speed. Yeah. And so for instance, Mercado Pago in Latin America, uh, you know, they have, uh, I think 150 million users, uh, in, uh, uh Latin America and, they didn't just launch crypto brokers. They also have a stable coin that they've enabled. And you start to really be able to now connect people all over the world to instantaneous payment and asset movements. And they're gonna want more and more of that across their entire financial uh, portfolio.
0: Yeah. And uh, speaking of digital assets, uh, if you can see behind uh, Chad, those are drawings by his five-year-old daughter. uh, And we were joking that uh, he's gonna turn those into NFTs soon. um, So so look out. Um, But the the NFT explosion recently has been, has been rather amazing. And is just, uh, I think crypto has always surprised me in these ways. Um, and, and just what might seem like a a very sort of mundane thing, like to be able to prove digital scarcity turns out to be, you know, the hundreds of billions of dollars market cap, uh, you know, within uh, less than a year or so.
1: Yeah. I think it's, um, uh, really interesting. I mean, the NFT, um, Uh, uh, shift has been really surprising Mm -hmm. for a lot of people because it's been tried before in the past and it just never quite took. And you just don't know when, uh, to the question you had earlier around the adoption curve, you don't know exactly how it's going to unfold, but you have some ideas. And the NFT uh, point to me is enormous because you're creating the ability to provably show that you own digitally native information. Mm -hmm. It could be a picture of an ape, It could be um, a uh, ownership to um, a music, a piece of music. It could be artwork, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You now have created mechanisms that people are increasingly getting used to, which shows that you probably own something. And that really feeds into this concept of it's a whole new economy that is being developed. Um, And it's tied into needing a financial system. An economy needs a financial system in order for it to be able to function well. And that's what's going on is that NFTs are showing what the future can look like. Will it be exactly like this? Who knows? Is this like a pets.com moment potentially uh, for like a lot of these pieces of art? We don't really know, but the fundamental shift that it represents is profound in my opinion. And uh, in the same way that the internet was a fundamental shift, whether or not pets.com was going to be a viable business or not, it didn't change the fact that it was, pointing to a fundamental shift and that was happening that is the exact same thing that nfts are showing
0: yeah i agree with you completely i think several years ago banks might have you know put a few people on this like go check out what this blockchain thing is not sure if they were going to take it seriously i think it's not going away and i think everyone is taking it seriously now and it's great to have firms like yours you know building the infrastructure that's needed for web3 so, thank you very much, Chad, for joining us today for this conversation series. And it's always great to see you and uh, all the best of luck with Paxos.
1: Yeah, great seeing you again, Matt. Thanks
0: a lot. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decentral.io. That's D E C. E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O and on Twitter at dissential. Have a great day